Well, I'm so glad to have you joining us online today. Just so you know, at any point, we'd love to have you sound off in the comments with any, with any questions, anything you connect with today, a prayer requests, anything. Just feel free to interact with us and with one another. And for those of you that don't know me, my name is Chad. I serve as pastor of New Life Wichita, and this is just our fourth Easter as a church. And I'm pretty sure worldwide pandemic wasn't part of my church planner training, but I've been so looking forward to today because even without a pandemic, we just recognize that life is complicated. Uh, This life is complicated. Education is complicated. Relationships, money, marriage, trying to find a marriage, raising kids, career choices of faith, uh, dealing with aging parents. It just can all feel complicated. And we launched New Life Wichita simply because we'd like to help with all of that. And right now, with nothing in our lives uh, feeling normal, in the midst of so much drama and challenge, my, my hope is that at least for a few moments, even for those of you that wouldn't consider yourself a church person, uh, that together we could just push pause and step out of all the stress and the uncertainty. And to uh, give you a sense of where we're headed today, there's something in all of us that we just want answers in our normal day-to-day lives. We want a sense of direction and solutions to our problems. And my hope is that by the end of our time together today, that you'll come to discover or be reminded that Easter ultimately provides more answers and direction and solutions than we may have ever realized. And that instead of demanding something through Jesus, God offers something. And what he offers is the ultimate solution to our ultimate problem, which connects to everything else in our lives. So for the next few minutes, resist the temptation to shop on Amazon or multitask. And my hope is to take you to a place that when you log off in a few moments, you'll log off with a fresh and renewed perspective that could literally change everything for some of you. Now, not all, but many of you grew up in church and likely they called the Sunday gathering the worship service or the music part was worship, right? It's a pretty churchy word. There are some exceptions like, I worship the ground she walks on, like something I say to my wife every day, right? And you may not have thought about it this way, but it's something that we do all the time. Uh, To worship something is just simply to recognize something's worth. So therefore, to worship someone is to recognize someone's worth. It's worth-ship. And from the beginning of time, the human race has instinctively looked up, believing that there was something out there that controlled what happened here. So in ancient times, people believed in multiple gods and they worshiped them and they they looked to the gods to survive. They looked to the gods to send rain, looked to them for victory and battle, looked to the gods to make sure that their children were born healthy. And they were always trying to figure out this magic combination, how do I get the gods on my side? How, How do I get the gods to favor my family? Or how do I get the gods to favor me so I have a son instead of a a daughter? And and sorry, ladies, it's just the way the world thought in ancient times, as they do in some cultures even today. They felt dependent on the gods, but they didn't know exactly how to get the gods to do what they needed, to, to get the gods to do what they wanted them to do for them. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, because for some of you, you believe there's something out there There have been times that there have been things that you've wanted, something that you've wanted badly, or maybe you were experiencing something overwhelming and you thought, if there's a God out there, how do I get him or get her to help me? Uh, This has been going on from the beginning. And then over time, ancient people determined part of worshiping the gods and getting the gods to help them out 
involves sacrifice, that ultimately that you are going to give something precious. It's like something make available to the gods where they would go, wow, look at that. I think I'm going to make it rain or I, I think I'll keep the locust away. I think I'm going to give them victory in battle. So essentially a sacrifice was a bribe because the gods were holding all the cards. They controlled everything. And then somehow humans decide, decided the spilling of blood was something that got the attention of the gods. And the more valuable the blood, the more value they were expressing for their gods. So in nearly every culture, they sacrificed animals, but in many cultures, they would sacrifice people. They would sacrifice their enemies, even their friends or people of their own tribe. And if they really wanted to get the attention of the gods, they would sacrifice a child, sometimes their own child. All of this in an effort to get the undivided attention and favor and blessing of the gods. But it was a constant guessing game, just trying to figure out exactly what it was that the gods required and it was virtually impossible. But fortunately for ancient people, there were people like me, people that knew the secrets of getting the gods' attention, right? There were priests and religious leaders that had sacred secrets and texts. And of course, there was always a parallel between making the gods happy and making the priest happy. In fact, for some of you, the reason you gave up on church is because you began to get the feeling that the person in my position was somehow manipulating the text and manipulating the people, telling us we're actually doing God's bidding to get God's blessing. But it seemed to always come back in the direction of the person standing on the platform. And you saw through all that. And unfortunately, that's been going on from the beginning of time. Now, ancient Jewish worship was similar in that it included animal sacrifice, but why they sacrificed was very different. Unlike other nations, sacrifice for the Jews was not a bribe because they had something the surrounding nations did not have. And while I know this may all sound academic, hang in there because this is so important for where we're going. The Jews had a written contract or a covenant with God that God had initiated with the nation through Moses at Mount Sinai. You can read about it in the book of Exodus. And in this covenant, God said, you're going to be my people not because you did anything to deserve it, because, but because I chose Abraham to become a family, to become a nation. And in addition to this covenant or this contract with God, God gave terms and conditions. It became known as the law. God said, here's the deal. I'm pulling you out of slavery. I'm going to give you a land because you are my people. And here's how you are to behave in that land. And here's how you are to behave towards one another. And if you misbehave, you'll still be my people, but I'm going to kick you out of the land. And for those of you with kids, this is how time out works, right? It's like, you're still my son, but you need to move away from me. You need to go over to that corner. And when you can come back and be a rational, positive part of the family, you can come back. Well, this is basically what God was saying. I love you. I'll always love you. You don't need to bribe me, but I will put you in time out. This is Deuteronomy 28. And it's the hinge, it's the explanation of God's relationship with the nation of Israel. And the amazing thing is, the law God established with, with Israel was way, way ahead of its time. It gave rights to foreigners. It taught them how to treat their servants. It protected women. It banned human sacrifice. And all of this totally separated them and separated and set them apart from the nations around them. In fact, anyone that's critical of the Sinai covenant between God and ancient Israel simply does not understand what was going on in the world at that time. It was brilliant, and it was perfect for its time. 
And this law, this moral code set them apart and it changed the way, the way that these ancient people reacted and worshiped God and how they treated everyone around them. And this points to the biggest differentiator between ancient Jews and pagans. And this is so important. Israel's God was more concerned with obedience than with sacrifice. See, the pagans didn't care. The gods of the pagans didn't care how you treated your husband or your wife or your kids or anyone. It was all about bribing them to get them to make it rain and to give you victory in battle. But the Jewish God, Yahweh, was different. He was like, listen, you can sacrifice animals all day long, but what makes me happy and pleases me is how you treat each other and foreigners and how you behave in the land. In fact, one of the ancient Hebrew kings summed it up this way. He wrote, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. You can slaughter half the sheep in Israel, but if you're disobedient, God says, I'm going to kick you out of the land because I'm more concerned with how you treat one another and behave than what you sacrifice to me. So Israel's sacrificial system wasn't designed to keep God happy. Israel's sacrificial system, and this is so important, was designed to make atonement for sin. This is something no one else in the ancient world understood because their approach to God and the gods was so different. And the word atonement, if you look at it, it's in the English, it's at one So atonement was about reconciling. It was about taking two parties that were divided and doing something that brought them together and made peace. The Hebrew word means to cover something. It means to cover something bad with something good in order to restore relationship. So when they broke God's law, day after day, year after year, individual Jews would cover up their sin by making costly animal sacrifices or grain offerings. They usually did this, did this at the temple, and they did this uh, to, uh, to, make, uh, to, to make covering with God, but then they also had to go make restitution with the person that they had wronged. This wasn't just a vertical thing. This was a horizontal thing as well. So throughout the year, Jews offered sacrifices to atone for their personal sin. But then once a year, something huge and unique would happen. People, Jews would come from all over the world. They would gather in Jerusalem, get as close to the temple as possible, and they would celebrate a complicated festival called the Day of Atonement. And this is where they would gather as a nation and they would repent as a nation of their sins from pa the past and sins that they didn't even know that they had committed. And as part of this festival, something powerful would happen. At some point, the high priest would place both of his hands on the head of a goat and symbolically place the sins of the entire nation of Israel on this goat. Then someone would be assigned to lead that goat down the southern stairs, off the Temple Mount, through the streets, out the gate, into the valley and into the wilderness and then abandon it. This was symbolically saying God has taken away into the wilderness our sin as a nation and we are now sinless as a nation for one year. And the following year they would have to do the whole thing all over again. So the Jewish sacrificial system was a temporary fix for a problem that required an ultimate solution. But all of this was pointing towards something. And this is where you and I begin to come into play. Because what God initiated with the nation pointed to the fact that God was up to something bigger for you and for me in the entire world. To a time when God would bring the ultimate solution to our ultimate problem. And it was pointing to Easter. And God chose a nation to speak in terms that the world could understand. 
that there is a God who desires sacrifice and allegiance, but more than that, he desires obedience when it comes to how we behave and how we behave towards each other. And if you offend me, God would say, by offending someone I love, then not only do you need to make atonement with me, but you need to make restitution to them as well. But ultimate atonement towards God is something that you and I can't do on our own. So this system of sacrifice was a temporary covering. And then one afternoon around year 30, a man came out of nowhere and he sounded like an Old Testament prophet. He looked and smelled like someone you wouldn't invite over. His name was John. But John was a common name, so if you were named John, you needed a nickname. And his nickname was The Baptist. They called him John the Baptist because he had tried the Presbyterian and Methodist churches, but he preferred the Baptist church. I'm making that up. He was called John the Baptist because people had never seen this before. He baptized people. Jews had heard of Gentiles being baptized because if you were a Gentile wanted to become Jewish, there was a ceremony which included ceremonial washing to cleanse yourself of your Gentileness, so to speak. And even Jews had ceremonial washings. But they would do it on their own. And they had never seen anyone take someone else and baptize him. And John's message was simple. His message was get ready. It was get ready because God is about to do something new and if you're not ready, you're going to miss it. And the way you get ready is by repenting, which simply means to change your mind and your direction when it comes to your life and your sin. So this way you'll have a clear view and be able to recognize this thing that God is about to do. Now I know for some of you, you don't like the word sin, but just hang in there. I'll get to that in a minute. But what was unusual about John's message was that he didn't say go to the temple in order to repent. No, no, no. You repent right here in front of your brothers and sisters by allowing me to baptize you. And in doing so, you're publicly identifying with my message in this brand new thing that God is about to do in your midst. And John the Baptist was gritty and he was loud. And the gospel writers tell us that all of Judea went out to see him. Now, let's just assume this was hyperbole because... You know, we say this every day, like right now, everybody is hoarding toilet paper. Okay, we know everyone is not doing that, but it's hyperbole. But in this case, either way, tens of thousands of people from the region were traveling from all over to hear and see John and be baptized. It was a big deal. It was so big that the temple leaders hear about it during the time when Jesus had basically nothing good to say about the religious leaders or the temple. It was so corrupt. But they send some people down to talk to John and they ask him, are you the Messiah? And he looks at them like, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to lace his sandals, but he is coming. Get ready. Well, this gets back to the Sadducees and Pharisees. They're not satisfied with the answer. So they travel down from Jerusalem to see John for themselves. They make their way through the crowd. They've got their ornate robes and servants and bells, maybe horns. The crowd parts and there's John. He looked bad. He smelled bad. He was wild-eyed. And here come these prim and proper men. And he looked at them. And when they saw the expression on his face, they knew they had made a horrible mistake. Before they could even ask a question, knowing he would risk his life in saying so, he pointed his bony finger at these most honored people in this culture and said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John John says, you bunch of corrupt men, change the way you live, because without that, your religion is worthless. 
And he says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking we're children of Abraham. And then John offends everyone in the crowd and saying, God could create children of Abraham from these stones you're walking on. So, so if you're not serious, don't come down here and interrupt me and waste my time. And they quickly realized it was seeing, seeing John was a bad idea. Well, this goes on for days or weeks, maybe months. And then one afternoon in the, one of the most dramatic scenes of all of history, Thousands of people are gathered on the shore listening and watching to John, watching John when suddenly he stops what he's doing. He stares up the hill just above the crowd gathered. He pauses and he points and he says, look, at last, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one that God has provided to take away once and for all the sins, not just of a nation, but of the world. Everyone, look, look, the ultimate solution to our ultimate problem. And again, I know some of you don't like the word sin, but in simplest terms, do you know what it is? Sin's an archery term. It means to miss the mark. And you know what I know about you? You miss the mark when it comes to your own standards, right? I mean, you and I, we're not even able to keep our own standards, let alone God's. You don't consistently follow the rules you made for yourself, let alone God's if there's a God, right? Every single one of us has regrets. Every single one of us has had moments where we knew the right thing to do or say or not do or say, and we chose the wrong thing and we knew it. We all have moments we look back and go, what was I thinking? Because we talked ourselves into doing or saying something that hurt us or hurt people we love. So we don't even keep our own standards. So John announces, look, the permanent fix to our pathetic, pathetic, sinful, can't get it right, won't even keep our own standards conditioned. Look, the final once and for all sacrifice for sin. Years later, an author would write what is basically a long sermon called Hebrews. It was written to first century Jews who had become Jesus followers after the resurrection, and they were beginning to wonder if they had made a mistake. And this author says basically everything I just said, but better. The author writes that the Jewish law is only a shadow. It's a shadow of the good things that are coming that are here right now, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. In other words, you could get the entire sacrificial system right every single time, but it's not enough. Those sacrifices are just an annual reminder of sins, an annual reminder that we keep sinning and we can't seem to do anything about it, yet we need to make up for it. And so it's impossible. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Cover temporarily? Yes. Take away? No. And that's why the world changed when Jesus showed up to fulfill and replace the entire sacrificial system Because it was temporary. It was designed to point to the ultimate solution to our ultimate problem, our sin that separates us from a holy God whom Jesus introduced as our Heavenly Father that desires to have a relationship with us. Something had to be done about our sin. It would need to be forgiven and removed once and for all. And for thousands of years, humans have been sacrificing in order to get the attention and approval and blessings of the gods In an unprecedented reversal nobody saw coming, God's sacrifice on behalf of the human race. For hundreds of years, the Jewish people have been sacrificing. And in this reversal, God would now make the sacrifice himself on your behalf 
and mine. And instead of demanding something through Jesus, he would offer something to us that regardless of your past or what you've done, he offers peace and reconciliation. He would make it so that you and I, a fallen sinful person, could lay in bed at night and know that we have peace with God. Author Philip Yancey once wrote that God took a big risk by announcing forgiveness ahead of time. That he would announce ahead of time that for you and for your children, that before you or they ever sin, and they will sin, they will fall short. We all do. God has provided a way of forgiveness. And with no guarantee that we would accept or recognize or appreciate it, he did it anyway. And in one afternoon when Jesus died on the cross, everything changed not just for a nation, but for the world. And there would no longer be sacrifice year after year. Now it would be the final sacrifice. And Easter would become a time to remember the sacrifice made once and for all for on our behalf. And so we don't gather on Easter or Sunday or any day to call the gods down or call God down because God already came down. And Easter is a time of celebration. And for those of you with us today for whom you're just not sure, you've got a lot of questions, questions about how does this all work and about the Bible and how we got it and who wrote it and making sense of everything that's in it. Keep working through your questions, but keep taking steps forward. You know, you can follow Jesus and still have lots of questions. It's no different than those that first followed him. In fact, we say often that we're a church where you can belong before you believe and you should ask questions and seek answers, but here's something you need to know. And this may go against everything you were ever told or taught about the Christian faith. The foundation of our faith is not a book. The foundation of our faith is an event. Because after the crucifixion, there were no Christians. There were no believers. There was no church. There was no movement. All of it died with Jesus. Every single follower of Jesus either went home or into hiding because clearly they were wrong about him. He was a fraud, a liar, or a lunatic. And on Easter morning, no one was standing outside the tomb with a countdown clock. They expected Jesus to do what dead people do, stay dead. But then suddenly, they all come out of hiding. And the cowards and deniers filled the streets of Jerusalem to tell everyone that would listen, he was dead, but we have seen him alive and hundreds saw him alive, and many of the witnesses wrote about it for us. Peter, during the trial, denied even knowing Jesus. And then days later, after his death, along with several other men, would have breakfast with Jesus on the beach. And as we in our partner churches say, if someone can predict their own and pull off their own death and resurrection, you just go with whatever they say. And Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection, and hundreds of witnesses confirm he pulled it off which means that we should accept his interpretation of his life and the significance of his death and his resurrection that punctuates it. That's why every Easter should be and is a celebration of that. It's what every Sunday should be. It should be emotional because we're celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then it means everything he said was true. What he taught us about God is true. What he taught us about eternal life and loving each other is true. And that if you follow him, you're not living your life in vain. You're not believing in vain. And it's why we celebrate. But, and again, this may be a big departure from what you were taught about being a Christian or the church experience you grew up with. 
But just like I don't show up in my wife's life once or twice a year and consider myself a good and faithful husband or show up in her life two or three weeks out of the month and call it a marriage, following Jesus doesn't end when Easter's over. And following Jesus and living a life that recognizes the sacrifice that was made on our behalf doesn't end when the Sunday gathering or any gathering breaks up and everybody goes to lunch or goes home. Just like a good marriage, the relationship with God, it's a, a living, breathing thing that I need to daily engage, that daily informs and influences every decision about my time, my money, my body, my present, my future. Jesus' sacrifice for us should inform all of our decisions every single day. That is, we, we live a life that, that daily becomes a celebration and remembrance that's associated with the life, the death, the re- and the resurrection and the lordship of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, who stepped onto history as a destroyer of the church, ends up meeting the resurrected Jesus and not shockingly becomes a follower. And in a letter to Christians living in Rome, he makes this important statement about the way Christians should live. Not just one day a year or twice a year. He says this, I urge you, brothers, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in light of what God has done for you in Christ, offer your body or your lives your relationships or your decisions in, in, in a way that is holy and pleasing to God. Not because God wants something from you, but because God wants something for you. If God submitted himself to us by sending his son to die for us, why would we not submit to him in return this day, the next day, every day? If God is for us, why in the world wouldn't we be for God every day of my life? So as I wrap up today, here's my hope for you. If you're serious about being a Christian, a Jesus follower, that you would celebrate this day, the day we recognize the event that offers us peace with God, and that every day, every week, you would never stop pursuing and leaning into following Jesus in a way that informs every part of your life, that you would get and stay more and more connected to Jesus' community, that you would establish a rhythm of being consistently in the New Testament and in praying and making time where it can just be you and God. And there's no better time than right now. And for those of you that are just checking us out or if you joined us today because it's Easter and this is one of the two times or so you go to church or you just want to get that family member off your back that's always bugging you to go to church and now you can say, hey, I went to church. It was online, but now you can leave me alone for another six months or a year. For whatever reason, you're not consistently connected to church community, I want to ask you to not just log off and go on with your day. Rather, my hope is that you would take your next step in your faith journey. And it's simple. That you would simply click the link in the comments to connect to our online New Life family page. And that you would come back next week. That's it. If you need everything in threes to make it better, invite a friend to join you next week. But either way, click the link, request to be added to the group, and come back and join us online again next week. Uh, Not because you're necessarily convinced, but you're at least intrigued. And uh, to let you know what to expect, in light of everything in the world that's going on right now, the message title is simple. The title is, Where's God? That if God is supposedly there and God's supposedly good, then why isn't he doing something about all of this? How could a good God allow bad things and like people are losing their jobs and people are dying? And if there's a God, where, where is he when I can't feel or see any evidence of him right now? So that's it. I want to wish all of you a happy Easter. 
If you have any questions or comments or prayer requests, you can sound off in the comments or you can message us. If you're a guest, click on the link to connect to the New Life group and plan to join us again next Sunday. Let me pray for all of us. God, I just thank you so much for this day, a day to celebrate, a day to to pause from everything that's going on around us and to, to focus on you, to focus on a love that we have just find almost impossible to, to imagine or understand. To thank you for sending your son to die on our behalf and to, to show us that we don't need to fear anything, including death, because you raised him. The witnesses saw it. I thank you that they wrote it down so that we would know. And I pray for every single one of us, Father, that we would, we would log off today and move into our life with a renewed sense, Father, of living each day, of drawing closer to you and having you inform every life and every relationship. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next week.